Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of domestic and international importance. And my special guest today, backed by popular demand, is the former Australian Ambassador to Iran and Deputy Ambassador to China, John Lander. Welcome, John. Thank you, Robbie. It's uh, good to be back. There's been so many momentous developments over the last uh, few months that, that I think it's necessary for us to uh, explore them a bit and especially their implications for Australia in the light of a, an impending world war. <laughs> well, John, you always bring a lot of great, a lot of clarity to these discussions of relating to international affairs because that, that's your area of expertise. That's what you worked in. We have brought, we, we've laid out the world map here for the purpose of consulting with for our discussion today because it is, it is, um, uh, a global geostrategic crisis that we're confronted with. It's almost unprecedented. Um, uh, we want to talk about the danger of world war, um, especially as it relates to Australia, that's coming out of these hot spots in the world at the moment. Of course, the, if, if we just cite three hot spots, we'll, we may not touch on all of them, but we've got the Russia-Ukraine crisis, you've got the the, uh, the burning hotspot of Israel-Gaza, but you've still got the, the big one, if it gets out of control, is still uh, China and the question of a war with mm. China. Mm. Um, and you've got some very important observations to make about all those things and how they relate to each other. Um, so I appreciate you for uh, uh, joining us today to discuss that. But I think um, let's talk about the burning one at the moment because that's where all the world's attention is, and justifiably so. Um, Israel and Gaza. What's what's your summary of what do you think is the dynamic there at the moment? Uh, well, be before I um, give you that, I should say that I would imagine that some of what I have to say would probably invite the criticism of anti-Semitism, and I just want to put it out in front that I am not anti-Semitic. Uh, the Palestinians are a Semitic people and expressing sympathy for the Palestinian plight is by nef definition not anti-Semitic. Uh, <coughs> so I am, however, anti-Zionist. Uh, when I first joined Foreign Affairs way back in 1967, I was asked where I wanted to be posted. I said anywhere but Israel. I was asked why. And I said because the Zionist state of Israel is applying to the people of Palestine the same measures that the Nazis applied to the Jews. Uh, I consider the, that political Zionism has nothing to do with the promotion of uh, the uh, respect for uh, the, the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. Uh, it's... it's um, a distortion which many, many Jews around the world agree with. Yep. And I think that's important to note that here, in, even in Melbourne, we find many Jewish Australians marching with people who are demonstrating in support of Palestine and against the uh, massacre of the Palestinian people. So I just wanted to get that up front. Well, it is important. It is important to be able to say that, and you, it, it's it's a sort of statement that um, up until now, and still now, will earn you a lot of criticism for saying it. But um, you can't ignore the the true horror of what's actually taking place right now in Gaza, and if um, criticism of Israel is allowed to be construed as anti-Semitism, which is what the, the most hardcore Zionists and, and the neocon crowd have tried to, to achieve over the last few years, shut down any criticism of Israel, then it's actually, in my view, John, doing a, a, dis, a disservice to Jewish people, right? It's, um, that's why a lot of Jewish people themselves don't agree with it. Um, and, it and it's certainly going to blow back on mm. everybody um, as if this is allowed to get out of control. <clears throat> um, so, all right, with that said, uh, this, yes. is, this is serious. What's your view? Uh, well, the defence of Israel or, and the defence of the right of Israel to exist does not 
imply in any way the necessary destruction of another people. Uh, you cannot defend the right of one mm. by denying the right of the other. Yeah. Uh, and it, it has been made clear by many statements by senior leaders in the current Israeli government, from the Prime Minister down, that their clear intention is to uh, drive the Palestinian people out of Palestine. Uh, and and uh, they have suggested that the countries which are sympathetic towards Palestinians should take them uh, and thereby clear them out of, yep. of Palestine, uh, which, of course, is uh, a, an ethnic cleansing process uh, accompanied now by a, uh, a level of slaughter that the world has not seen since the Second World War, except, I might say, for the, uh, the American onslaught on Iraq, Iraq. Yep. which, uh, going after the non-existent weapons of mass destruction, resulted in the deaths of at least a million people. Uh, when you say they've made it, these, the people in the Israeli government have made it clear, um, you, you're referring to things like even the Prime Minister Netanyahu quoting the Old Testament the worst parts of the Old Testament, saying, you know, go and slaughter Amalek, uh, leave no one alive, all this yes, kind of thing. The seed of Amalek. The seed of Amalek. Uh, um, all men, women and children and all cattle uh, and livestock uh, to wipe the, the seed of Amalek from the face of the earth. Uh, and he, uh, <coughs> he was then quoted by Israeli soldiers who were... Uh, clearing, the, as they call it, uh, the Palestinians out of the north of Gaza uh, as they were blowing up uh, residential properties. Uh, I've seen a video of, mm. of a group of them chanting uh, the, the words of Benjamin Netanyahu uh, about clearing the seed of Amalek. So it's... That's only one. Uh, the the case put forward by South Africa at uh, <clears throat> the ICJ in The Hague uh, was extremely detailed, extremely clear, very, very uh, precisely presented and left, I think, no doubt in the mind of anybody who reads their document that uh, Israel has ex has explicitly expressed genocidal intent uh, and much to Australia's shame uh, Australia has uh, instead of undertaking its responsibility as a signatory, signatory to the genocide convention which requires us to take any action we can to prevent a potential genocide we have done the opposite uh, in providing military and political support to uh, Israel to enable it to continue on its present course. This is, I think, a betrayal of the Australian people. It's a betrayal of what we stand for or what we should stand for as a nation. We have a proud history of developing the, the United Nations. We were in on the ground floor in the development of the United Nations organization and in on the ground floor in the development of many of the earliest uh, resolutions and conventions of the United Nations organization, including the Genocide Convention, which of course mm. dates back to 1948. Uh, and we have um, basically refused to undertake our obligations under the convention and instead the one the the one group uh, we could now call it a country I think uh, Yemen uh, in seeking to prevent uh, commercial chipping to and from Israel uh, is in fact doing what it can to 
bring the genocide to a halt. And we have joined in attacking that. Well, Yemen is actually, you're right, Yemen has said that their actions, which are being characterised as equivalent of piracy and terrorism, that their actions is actually in um, support of the Genocide Convention and trying to stop genocide. And what they're effectively trying to do, this is my reading of it, is impose a blockade on Israel. Now, that's being called terrorism, yet the United States, under no authority whatsoever, claims it has the right to impose blockades on countries, right? It has well, Israel itself imposes a blockade on Gaza and has done so for 17 years. Exactly. Israel also participates, um, not that long ago, Israel bombed an Iranian ship in the Persian Gulf going to Syria, right? Because Israel claims to the right to have a blockade on Syria. So that, that's never called terrorism. And this is important for people to understand when they think about you know, the way this is characterised in the media, that's never called terrorism, but what the Yemenis are doing, the Houthis are doing in, with the shipping is, and now we have gone and assisted the United States and the United Kingdom in bombing them. Yes, you're quite right. I, and I would argue that, the, that uh, the Houthis in Yemen have in fact undertaken their responsibilities under the, the uh, Genocide Convention. Uh, <clears throat> one of the effects of, of the uh, British and American um, attacks on the Houthis in Yemen, I think has been simply to consolidate the authority of the, the Houthis mm. as the uh, legitimate government in Yemen. The, the civil war that was taking, has, had been taking place in Yemen over more than seven years, uh, <coughs> supported by the United States through its uh, proxy, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, has is virtually over and the opponents of the Houthis have been clearly discredited uh, in comparison to what the, the Houthis are doing. They should be called by their proper name Ansar Allah. Um, but they, they are clearly uh, taking action in response to the will of their people uh, who overwhelmingly support Palestine in its struggle against the um, the overwhelming uh, force of the Israeli um, defence force, which is armed by the United States. Because it should be remembered that the Palestinians do not have an army; mm. um, they don't they don't have a state. Uh, they are in Palestine, an area which is claimed by Israel. And the area that is occupied by the Palestinians is actually under occupation, under forceful occupation by Israel. So the, the actions by Hamas, as horrendous as it was, uh, is more in the character of a rebellion against the oppression of an occupying power than an invasion of one state by another. That is its status under international law. Yeah. Which is a very important distinction that the Israelis don't want to make. They're trying to, they're trying to treat Gaza and Hamas as if it's a separate country and with its own government that they're defending against. Yeah, which is a paradox because they claim that, that, that Gaza and the West Bank are actually, that do actually belong to Israel uh, and that... Uh, the, the Palestinians have no right to it. Mm. So on the one hand, they say it is ours. And on the other hand, they say we've been invaded yep. uh, from within our own territory. Now, <laughs> now, John, there's a human factor here. You alluded to it earlier when you said talked about how the, the, uh, the, the Houthis are responding to the, the Yemeni population's views. So Israel will say it's responding to the Israeli population's views. And all of this is justified because of just what an atrocity was perpetrated on October 7, the, the, the worst, the worst um, massacre of Jews since the Holocaust itself. And therefore what they're doing is justified and every, every other country would be justified in doing the same. What is your view of that argument? Firstly, uh, my understanding is that, that the vast majority of the citizens of Israel do in fact... Um, support the, the view that the, the uh, Palestinians are subhuman and uh, have no right to be there. Uh, 
but there are dissenting views within Israel itself. Mm. Secondly, I think, and far more importantly, is that two wrongs do not make a right. Mm. Uh, that it is, it is not a, an appropriate response to an atrocity to then commit a, a, a further atrocity of many, many, many times greater magnitude yep. um, in response. Uh, it is, uh, it's just um, completely immoral and I think uh, unacceptable from a moral point of view, but it's also politically um, um, unwise and counterproductive. Well, we've got, um, as you referred to, the, the South Africans have taken Israel to the International Court of Justice and accusing them of having genocidal intent. Um, but, of course, the United States has completely shot that down and, and said there is, no, there is no genocide taking place in Gaza. Yet, and we'll come back to this later in the discussion, but the same United States for the last three years has been blowing the horn saying that what China is doing to Uyghurs in Xinjiang is genocide, mm. basically well, making them go to TAFE College and retrain is genocide, but what's happening in Gaza is not genocide. And so if you're, a, if you're an Arab in the world and you're seeing what's happening in Gaza that is being um, protected by the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia, etc., as if it's somehow acceptable, um, isn't that going to, one, give you a very strong impression that in global terms you are a second-class citizen, your life doesn't matter, and B, fuel any... Uh, you know, fuel the kind of backlash that's going to create more destabilizations, more terrorism, etc. Uh, well, my first comment is you said that the United States had shot down the uh, South African case at the ICJ. Uh, I don't agree. Uh, they didn't shoot it down, they merely rejected it. Mm. Uh, shooting down implies that they had come up with some sort of an argument which um, uh, undermined the, the arguments being put forward by South Africa. They they clearly did not do that. Uh, That's the, why you're the expert foreign policy <laughs> diplomat and I'm the commentator. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the Israeli arguments in the ICJ uh, were clearly an attempt to defend the indefensible and the United States' um, outright rejection of the uh, South African case uh, really amounted to nothing more than that. They certainly did not weaken the South African case at all. Yep. Um, <clears throat> uh, the big concern, I think, for the world is the, uh, the possibility that the ICJ may find a procedural argument to not proceed and mm. not rule on the South African application, which... As I, has implications for the whole world because it it really um, will um, tear out the foundations of international law, just completely rip them away. It will be uh, an acceptance of the rule of the jungle rather than the rule of law. Ironically, at the hands of the nations in the world that tell everybody every day they're enforcing the rules-based order. Which, of course, they're not enforcing the rule of international law. The rules-based order... Yeah, what's the difference? The, the rules-based order is a, a set of ever-varying and const constantly vacillating uh, rules devised by the United States for the benefit of the United States and its Western allies. Uh, a, a very good example, of course, is the, uh, the, the United States claim and our claim uh, in the Red Sea that the actions they're taking are upholding, and Richard Miles said this himself, Australia must uh, support the United States and the UK because we must uphold the freedom of navigation the the uh, United Nations the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea 
uh, is not what the United States is attempting to uphold no. at all. It is attempting to uphold the, the right of the Western powers to uh, continue their navigation wherever they please. Mm. Uh, the United States is not even a signatory to the Law of the Sea Convention and repudiates it quite frequently. Uh, so uh, I personally am, am quite distressed by this glib uh, approach of the Australian government of always insisting that we must uphold the rules-based order. Um, <clears throat> because one of the most difficult things about the rules-based order is finding out what the rules are. The ever-changing rules. The ever-changing rules. Um, and we are going to have to face our responsibilities with regard to China. Uh, we, we cannot continue to pursue uh, a, a hostile attitude towards China. Uh, but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, <clears throat> the largest strategic picture that I wanted to talk about this morning was the way in which the crisis in Ukraine, the Middle East, and the, the way that they relate to the potential crisis uh, with regard to China. First and foremost, the United States has not abandoned its policy of defending its position as the of, of primacy in the world. Yeah. That is still the driving force of the United States foreign and defence policy. Known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine. That's number one. Yeah. Secondly, in pursuit of that, it has to be remembered that before the Ukraine war broke out, as if wars actually break out rather than being mm. the deliberate agency of human, of human well, persons, yeah. but before the war in Ukraine, the United States White House spokesman actually told a press briefing on the 22nd of January 2022 that the United States, by its actions in concert with its European uh, partners, would so weaken Russia as to prevent it from exercising any influence on the international stage. So the purpose was clear from the start. And <clears throat> they have not succeeded in that aim. Uh, it is indisputable now that, the, that you, Russia is in a stronger position today yeah. than it was before that war, before NATO pursued its uh, offensive against uh, Russia. And I may be attacked for saying that yeah. the Ukraine war is, is the result of NATO's aggression, but NATO itself has made it very, very clear that it, it has said the war in Ukraine is NATO's war. Mm. Um, uh, Jens Stoltenberg has said that on numerous occasions. So it is quite clear that <coughs> it is NATO, driven by the United States, that uh, is responsible certainly for the continuation of the, the war in Ukraine. Yep. Likewise, of course, in pursuit of, of the supremacy of the United States, the United States gives completely unconditional and unquestioning, unquestioning support to Israel, mm. which has uh, resulted in the current tumult in that region. And although it says that it has no wish for the war to widen, that it should be contained as a war between Israel and Hamas, the surrounding countries, uh, in Jordan, well, we've mentioned Yemen, of course, and then we've got Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Syria uh, and, of course, Iran, uh, all in the, and Lebanon. And Turkey, actually. And, and Turkey, surprisingly enough, which is, of course, a, a NATO member. And the, the biggest army in NATO. And Yes, I'm glad you made that point. Mm. Um, they all have expressed sympathy for and support for the Palestinian people in this conflict. Yeah. Uh, and we are seeing 
gradually, day by day, an increasing involvement of these countries. Um, Hezbollah in Lebanon has been attacking north of, north of Israel and Israel has been counter-attacking. That's been going on for a while. Um, we have recently seen, uh, I think it was last week, the, <clears throat> the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, not one of Iran's so-called proxies mm. um, in the, the um, uh, anti-Israeli uh, so-called terrorist groups in, uh, closer to Israel. But now Iran itself, with its own defence force, has attacked an Israeli installation in Erbil in, um, Iraq. in Iraq. Mm. So that's one step closer to Iran being uh, fully engaged in the conflict. Yep. Uh, now, if Iran and Israel are at war with each other, um, that puts at risk Iran's oil facilities in particular uh, and the closure of the uh, Persian Gulf in, <coughs> in a way similar to the closure of the, the, the Red Sea, if the, if the Straits of Hormuz were to be shut down or if, if Iran's oil production and oil shipping facilities were um, destroyed, this impacts vitally on China's interest. Mm. Iran is a very, very important supplier of energy to China. Yep. And of course, we can see that China's recognition of that fact by the fact that China has located uh, numerous um, military vessels in the area of the uh, Straits of Hormuz. Uh, they have uh, signaled that they are willing to protect their interests uh, if it comes to it. Uh, now, if, uh, if Ch China is dragged into the conflict in the Middle East, this serves the purpose of the United States strategic plan of involving China in a war which would help to uh, bog down China's economic development and stymie its, um, its economic development cooperation with other countries. It, the United States, I would expect to see the United States to try extremely hard in the same way that it has done in Ukraine to technically not be engaged in such a war. But, but, but to support those who were fighting on the side of Israel. But what you're describing means they also have an incentive to assist Israel in keeping this going. Um, I think that would be... It's beyond my knowledge to say so. Um, I'm only able to say what appears to be the mm. case. Um, <clears throat> I don't know whether the United States has had... Uh, has sort of logically worked out that it's in their interest to keep the Israel-Hamas um, war going uh, and that, that they can sort of play a dual game of uh, remaining disengaged themselves whilst ensuring that other countries become engaged. Um, well, the foreign policy establishment in Washington is known as the blob <laughs> to reflect the fact that it's not always of one mind, etc., but there would be factions in that that, yes. would, that would absolutely have that Yes, kind and, of we, we, and we should remember that the United, <coughs> the United States National Defence Strategy explicitly laid out uh, a strategy of uh, embroiling China in a war. Yeah. And that at the time that that was developed, it was seen that Taiwan could be induced to uh, cause a conflict with mainland China. Uh, <clears throat> the chances of that happening, I think, have diminished despite the elections in Taiwan. Mm. 
the Taiwan elections resulted in the election as president of the leader of the DP, the DPP, which is the, the Democratic People's Party, which is um, strongly supported by the National Endowment for Democracy of the United States, uh, and they're the ones that talk about independence an, as the instrument for pushing uh, Taiwan to independence. Yeah, <coughs> which would be a trigger for war. So. That has been interpreted by the uh, mainstream Western media as the Taiwanese people endorsing the policy of independence for Taiwan. Mm. And it's far from being the case. The, the DPP candidate won by 40% of the vote. That means that 60% of the vote is not in favour of the DPP's policy regarding uh, potential independence for Taiwan. And explicitly so, because the other two candidates were... Were both about explicit about not seeking independence. Getting on with China. And they, they got 60% of the support. That's 60% of the vote, and there was a 30% of the electorate that didn't vote at all didn't anyway. Didn't vote at all anyway, and who, who knows what they thought. Mm. Uh, so the people as a whole in Taiwan have clearly not overwhelmingly supported the, the DPP's policy of yeah. continuing this pursuit of independence. And even uh, William Lai, uh, Lai Chang-te, uh, who is now the, the president of the province of Taiwan, has walked back. Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't disavowed, yeah. but he certainly walked back from the idea of uh, early independence for Taiwan. Um, and... I would expect to see him over time continuing to pursue the, the expansion of the beneficial relations that have taken place in trade, investment, uh, education, people-to-people exchanges, mm. um, employment and so on between the province of Taiwan and the mainland. Uh, which is the preferred course, of course, for the, um, the Communist Party of China. The policy of the Communist Party of China is the peaceful reintegration yeah. of the life of Taiwan into the life of the, na the nation. And that is continuing to, to take place. And my impression is that most of the people in Taiwan want that status quo to continue. <clears throat> now, the, Australian, so, the Chinese ambassador to Australia on election day, which was last Saturday as we recorded yes, here... Yes, put out, put out an article pointing that out. Yeah, um, and he's been criticised for it. And he's been attacked for it, not just criticised. Uh, he's been accused of, of threatening Australia, uh, of all things, uh, where he has pointed out the obvious. Australia... I, mean, I was, of course, as you know, I was involved before, during and after yep. uh, the recognition of the People's Republic of China. 30% uh, of my career uh, was spent working on relations with China. <clears throat> the position that Australia ac adopted was that we accepted that there was one China, mm. that we accepted that Taiwan is a province of China, uh, that that a policy of one China incorporating the province of Taiwan was not only accepted by us, but was accepted by every other country that recognised China and was accepted by the United Nations, uh, which established that the one seat for China in the United Nations was to be occupied by the People's Republic of China. And accepting that was China's requirement for opening up diplomatic relations with us, right? Yes, of course. For which, uh, for which we knew we would benefit because we have access yes, to the world's biggest market. Yeah, all, all of that. We, yep. But we, we, uh, we did not then argue, yep. uh, uh, nor have we argued since, uh, that Taiwan is officially not part of China. Mm. Uh, and our, our official legal position, therefore, is that Taiwan is a province of China. So when we send our warships into Taiwanese waters, we are in fact sending our warships into Chinese waters. 
the equivalent of warships between Tasmania and Victoria. Uh, yes, if the Chinese sent a warship between Australia and, Ta- and, the, and the island of Tasmania, uh, which uh, is claimed by Australia but has never been ruled by Australia... To defend Tasmania. To, <laughs> <laughs> to defend Tasmania against Australia, uh, we would certainly get very upset. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the other thing I would say is that, the, that there is always a great deal of confusion over this question of of sovereignty and, uh, and governance. Mm. The sovereignty of a nation does not change when there is a change of governance. Yep. Yep. Uh, if we have a, a Labour Party in power in Canberra and we have a Liberal Party in power in Tasmania, that does not make Tasmania any less a part of the sovereign nation of Australia. Yep. And it's the same in China. Uh, the island of Taiwan, the province of Taiwan, has a different form of governance from the rest of mainland China. And indeed, mainland China has different forms of governance mm. in different parts of China. We have the special administrative regions of Hong Kong and Macau and, and of course, Shenzhen. And each one of those has different characteristics. They are not identical. And we also have the autonomous regions of uh, Inner Mongolia, Tibet and Xinjiang, which whilst they are part, integral part of the sovereign territory of China, they are uh, nevertheless operating under varied systems of governance. Well, and this is, you mentioned propaganda before, there's an exact example of this in the Australian newspapers, propaganda, the way it described when it attacked the Australian ambassador, it talked about how the CCP want to take control of Taiwan even though they have never governed it. And, of course, it's not true. The CCP, i.e. the government of China, wants Taiwan to be part of China, not owned by the CCP. They're just the government of China. <laughs> yes, but this that's is, right. This is the way uh, they word the propaganda. Yes. Well, the, the Communist Party for China has always made it very, very clear that the, the issue is that Taiwan is part of the sovereign territory of China. Yep. They have never said that they wish to take over governance in Taiwan. They've said exactly the opposite. And in fact, de facto, right at this moment, the one state, two systems mm. policy of the Communist Party of China is functioning if, in regard to Taiwan. Taiwan has a different system within Taiwan. Mm. That does not remove it from the sovereign territory of China. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it, we, it is conveniently forgotten that Taiwan itself was a one-party state, yes. a rather brutal one-party state, for many, many years. It's only recently, in the 90s, that it has, has changed its system of governance to uh, a electoral democracy. Uh, <coughs> We've been running a series in our magazine, the Australian Alert Service, on this history of Taiwan, which mm. is fascinating when you see what, what it was really like. But my point here is, of course, that, that Australia is, in fact, in breach of the convention to which it is a signatory, the mm. Convention of the Law of the Sea, when we send warships into Chinese waters. But just so we don't get off track, you've, you've, you, you introduced us with a much larger point, I think, want to, make, want to make sure people get it, which is that thanks to this interesting outcome from the Taiwanese election and some other things, because the immediate danger of war with China may well, not be growing, <coughs> the American strategy may be to draw China into war well, I don't in know the Middle it, East. Well, I, I don't know if it's a strategy. I'm looking at the actual the, the results of events. Yeah, um, yeah as I see them. Uh, the elections in Taiwan have not brought independence for Taiwan any closer. Yeah. Uh, and so the prospect of Taiwan provoking a war uh, with mainland China has receded, yes. in my view. Right. <coughs> However, the events in the Middle East, and yeah. particularly in the way in which they appear to be drawing China further and further in... Uh, is raising the prospect of China being involved in a Middle Eastern war. Mm. 
uh, as I said, I, I believe that the United States would try to, to technically remain outside that war for as long as it possibly can. Um, but I, China will defend its interests in its, in its uh, uh, energy relationship with Iran, if necessary. If that does result in the United States becoming uh, an, an active belligerent against China, Australia is automatically involved. Yeah. Because, uh, because the that's what American, we do. Ameri no, it's not just, it's just because what we do. We have no say in it. Yeah. You know, it's like the song says, because we have no say in it, no say in it at all. We, we, are the, we have handed over sovereignty uh, to the United States in many respects. Uh, our, one of the most important is that base, uh, military bases in Australia are under the, the unimpeded access and exclusive control of the United States. So they decide when, where and how uh, the facilities in Australia and against whom those facilities in Australia will be used. Uh, for many, many, many years now, Pine Gap has been the, mm. the jewel in the crown um, of the United States military presence in Australia and has been used uh, in the war in Ukraine. Uh, I have no doubt at all that it is currently being used in uh, the war in the Middle East, oh, we the, can, we the can, Israel this, Gaza war. This has been documented. We can confirm that guidance of uh, Israeli strikes has come from Pine Gap. Yes, so Pine Gap is, is, is heavily involved. So the question then arises, if the United States does find itself in an actual belligerent uh, con confrontation uh, with China, uh, what then happens to Australia? Mm. Because the United States undoubtedly would be conducting its operations against China from its command centres in Australia. So to me, it would appear to be logical that China would then feel obliged to attack s such centres in Australia. Uh, and of course, Australia, on past performance, would feel obliged to join the, join the United States in any war against China. Because we... We felt that we simply had to, because yeah. of the ANZUS alliance, yeah. we had to go into the war in Iraq, uh, which was a very shameful uh, episode in Australia's history. Uh, we feel that we have to support the United States in, the, in its support of Israel against Hamas uh, because of the ANZUS alliance. So I don't think we would have any choice. Richard Miles and, and, and I think the Prime Minister have said that Australia has given no guarantees to the United States that we would join it in a war against China. But the United States has left Australia with no choice mm. but to be involved. So it's a bit of irony that the, the alliance that on which we feel our security depends is what will um, destroy our national security by dragging us yeah. into a war. That yes, of course it will. Uh, and that, as we've said on previous discussions, that that's been pointed out by many people, including the late Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser. Fraser yep. <clears throat> I must say, I, I will reiterate the point I made in a previous interview as well, that when I was working in the Department of Foreign Affairs developing the, uh, the final communique on recognition of the People's Republic of China, uh, I inserted into a policy planning paper, which I was one of the people involved in drafting, mm. the, the notion that the ANSYS alliance should mean less to us in the future than it has done in the past, and that Australia should <coughs> chart independent policies more in the Australian national interest and in the interest of our near neighbours. The exact opposite has happened. None of our near neighbours agrees with our current defence policy. No. In fact, they see it they're as a threat. They object to it. They, they see it as threatening. It threatens in various ways. It th certainly threatens uh, 
uh, a nuclear um, sorry a, a nuclear proliferation in, yeah, we're, in we're, the Pacific. We've brought nuclear weapons into an area that they didn't that exist pre- before. Previously, were were excluded. Uh, it also um, threatens uh, a general arms race in mm. our neighbourhood. Uh, the more we we build up uh, our long-range uh, offensive capabilities, which is what uh, Mr. Miles keeps talking about, our ability to to um, uh, inflict uh, lethal damage on an adversary far from our shores, uh, the more our near neighbours will question our intentions towards them as well. Um, <clears throat> and we, we would be far better advised, I think, to... I still think what I said back in 1971 applies, that we would be far better advised to develop much closer relations with our neighbours than to join with the United States in far-flung wars. We should be, of course, at the point that Australia, of course, joined the United States in the war in Ukraine. Mm. Well, John, that that um, brings us to something we can conclude on then, I think. So it's always rather stark and striking to, in, to have, a, have you on our show with, with these uh, insights. But let's, let's um, talk about what could we, how should we be thinking if we wanted this not to happen and we actually wanted to bring about peace. What's, what's your view on, on the kind of um, role Australia should play and could play in the way the world is manoeuvring at the moment that might be positive and we could help bring about peace? <laughs> well, I find that a very difficult question to answer because... Um, I have an extremely pessimistic view of where Australia is headed. Mm. Uh, I, I think we've, we've dug ourselves into a very deep hole and it's very difficult to climb out of. Um, and every passing day we seem to dig ourselves in a little deeper. It would have been so... F- it would have been preferable for Australia to have simply said... We will abide by our obligations under the Genocide Convention in regard to Israel. Um, The the, I think part of the problem is, of course, we don't have leaders in Australia. We have rulers, and the rulers ignore the not only the opinion of the general public, but they ignore increasingly ignore the opinion of their rank and file. Mm. Uh, The rank and file of the Labor Party is clearly not in in tune with the government's policies uh, regarding uh, Israel and Hamas, and it's clearly not in tune even with the government's policies towards China. Um, The schizophrenic policies that we have towards China, where on the one hand we say we want a trade relationship with China, and on the other hand we regard China as the biggest threat. Um, In other words, quite paradoxically, we're asking China to continue to fund (laughs) the development of our capability to fight them. Yeah. You, 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 keep, you keep buying our iron ore, we will keep paying the Americans $360 billion for submarines to lock you into your part of the world and, and keep you there. And, and, and trap you in and, and, and fire missiles on you if we think you're getting too uppity. Yeah, so that brings us back to your question about the United Nations. I think the only way for Australia is to... Um, revive its commitment to the ideals of the United Nations, uh, to vote in favour of resolutions that, that seek to uphold the, the structure of uh, international law, mm. uh, which we so frequently fail to do um, in, in recent times. And couldn't we look at a situation like the Middle East and as... Um, a, a friend of mine uh, who, who actually is Jewish uh, uh, suggested just before Christmas uh, who had been as outraged by October 7 as everybody but when he, when he thought about it more he thought, you know, we've got a failed we've got a broken situation in the Middle East and the role of the Americans and the British, etc they, it, it just isn't working and he suggested now might be the time to bring in countries that have credibility and it just so happens China in world affairs is a country that has credibility, has good relations with almost all these countries. It does deals, it does business with them all, yes, including yes, Israel. Yes. 
funny and, enough. And of course, it, it brokered the reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And how big a deal was that? And well, that was enormous because, firstly, it was, it was uh, uh, reaching an understanding between two opposing uh, forms of Islam. Uh, Iran yep. is Shia and uh, Saudi Arabia is largely Wahhabi, uh, non-Shia. Sunni. And, and, uh, and Sunni. Um, and of course, Iraq, I was in Tehran during the Iran-Iraq war. So I was there when Iraq was bombing Iran and bombing Tehran. Mm. Um, fortunately, no bombs fell on me, but uh, they certainly fell on the city of Tehran. Fortunately for this interview too. While I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but now even Iran and Iraq are working together uh, to, to develop... Uh, more harmonious uh, relations. So, and of course, the one thing that has united all of the Islamic world, it seems, including the Islamic world nearest to Australia, which is Indonesia, um, is in their opposition to the current Zionist mm. policy of eradication of Palestinians. Mm. Um, so it, it is because I think the whole of the Islamic world, the, the, the um, the Islamic Cooperation Organization is 21, is it, or 27 countries, uh, all of which have uh, endorsed the opposition to um, Israel's attack on Palestine or on the Palestinians. Um, <clears throat> so that's creating uh, a much greater critical mass for a world war. Yep, yep. Uh, as you say, China has, uh, uh, has the respect of the Islamic world. Mm. Despite, coming back to your previous point, <laughs> despite the Western propaganda about China's treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, which has been so thoroughly debunked so many times, I don't think we need to go there. Except to say that the, 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 the main block of countries that have explicitly defended China repeatedly, have uh, been the Islamic, Islamic countries. countries. Which is one of the reasons why China has such good relationships yeah. with the Islamic yeah. countries. But <clears throat> um, So whether China would be able to uh, broker uh, an understanding in the Israel-Hamas conflict, I don't know, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, I think at the moment, f by their actions, um, militarily, China has demonstrated more of an interest in protecting their own economic and particularly energy interests rather than um, becoming, um, you know, getting themselves mired in the quagmire of <laughs> Middle East's conflict. Um, but we shall see. Um, I don't, Chinese diplomacy has never failed to surprise the world, mm. uh, so it may yet do so again. But as far as Australia and is concerned... And if it does, Australia should be supporting it. We should, indeed. I think diplomatically we should do everything we possibly can to encourage uh, any effort by China to uh, bring about a resolution of the conflict. That should be our role anywhere mm. in the world, yeah. uh, rather than simply donning our jackboots and rushing off to uh, join the Americans in whatever war they happen to be pr prosecuting at the time. And I, you know, we've been doing it ever since the, the Korean War. Um, and I think America's had something like 147 wars since the Second World War. Mm. So, you know, we, we haven't a good track record uh, as a conciliator. And of course, no. <laughs> uh, we, we certainly, in the current uh, situation, uh, we uh, have joined the hypocrisy of the Western uh, propaganda machine. Which, which produces the ignorance which then the governments exploit to be able to pursue these policies that are, that are not in our interest but in the United States and the UK's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. interest. Yes, yes the, uh, the gaslighting in Australia is overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, John, I think we should leave it there. We can call you, a whole you've, shocked us, you've shocked us enough for the day. I think that's a... <laughs>
<clears throat> it, it's a fairly grave warning, though. We should look for, we should keep a, a, an eye out for that danger that you've described, mm. um, because we know we know, as we've talked about on in previous instalments of these interviews, there is a military-industrial complex. It is always looking for war opportunities. That is the evil presence in the world. We're always that the forces for peace are always up against, which is expanding its foothold in Australia. Exactly, we're and we're funding it. <laughs> So we we know yeah, we, we know that exists, and so <clears throat> and so it's right to be on the lookout for where the war dangers um, are, are, are getting greater. Um, because we've talked so much about Israel and Gaza, I'll, I'll conclude by a little plug for the report that we put out just before Christmas on the the Temple Mount plot. Who was sparking? Where well, we've re-released some analysis mm, from twenty mm, years mm, ago. Who was yeah. sparking a religious war in the Middle East? Where you got elite. Forces in the United States and especially the United Kingdom in this case, very elite um, groupings of, of interests, actually deliberately sponsoring the craziest of the crazies in Israel, the, 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 the religious extremists who see themselves as, you know, uh, totally justified in everything because they're God's chosen people. They want to rebuild Solomon's temple on the, on the ruins of the Mosque of Omar the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and which would start World War Three. That that is what that is the one thing that will get all those twenty-seven Muslim countries in the same army, yes. right? For sure, I think so. Yes, and and there are and and these people in Israel would not have the power they have were it not for the outside sponsorship they receive, and it comes from Australia as well. Our <coughs> Prime Minister, our former Prime Minister, was over there recently, who's a fundamentalist, born again Christian, who buys into all this narrative, um, backing them up to the hilt. So we've exposed that. There are, there are forces who want war. and they, So we'll put a link below this where you can have a look at the mm. report I'm talking about. And I just, I just comment that goes all the way back to the fact that it was the UK that sponsored yep. the creation of Israel and it was the UK's military forces that helped drive, uh, helped in the, the partition of Palestine to, to drive Palestinians out of the territory that had been agreed by the United Nations resolution should be now the state of Israel. Mm. Um, so the UK has been a driving force in the creation of Israel and in the sustaining of Israel ever since day one. Yep. No, for sure. Our party is not a party that goes around trying to decry the existence of Israel, etc., we like to look at what's, what's the possibility to bring peace to all places. How could you bring a lasting peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, etc.? We don't have a, 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 um, a chip on our shoulder about Israel, but we see the hypocrisy. And now we see the hypocrisy in the worst possible terms because there is an absolute massacre. There's Of the 24,000 civilians in Gaza that have been killed, 10,000, over 10,000 are children. There's a thousand children. Those numbers are increasing every day. Exactly. There's a thousand children who have, who have had limbs amputated without anaesthetic because of the blockade on Gaza, right? Yes, right. And <laughs> that is acceptable to our government and, and to the Americans, And it's acceptable in the minds of the, so many uh, people in the West because they are numbers, they are faceless and nameless. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just a statistic. Uh, whereas... Um, While we claim we're the champions of human rights, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant about hypocrisy. <laughs> um, all right. Well, anyway, obviously, if we, well, if we kept going in this vein, we wouldn't stop. We'd be here all I, day. I, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to sound the warning again to uh, Australia. Uh, watch out. Uh, war is coming, and we're not doing anything to uh, avoid it. Yeah. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks to the viewer for watching Citizens Insight. Stay tuned for more, more instalments. We plan to do a lot more of our Citizens Insight interviews this year. We didn't do very many last year. Yeah, good. But there's a lot to be said, so look out for more instalments uh, in the future, including the, the one that we're planning next in a couple of weeks' time will be about this this Temple Mount plot. We're going to do an interview with one of the authors of the analysis of that. So look out for that. But in the meantime, um, thanks for tuning in. Please help us get this message around. Like it, uh, share it on your social media and, and through email, etc. Um, 
subscribe to the show, click on the bell icon so you get notified of, of, of uh, future. new ep- future episodes. <laughs> and, yeah, help us get it around. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Citizens Insight.